You are listening to Agency Work, the podcast that provides career advice for people who want to work at a creative agency. I am your host, Parker Playstead. Today I am talking with Kendra Bailey Morris. She is a food writer, cookbook author, and freelance content creator here in Richmond, Virginia. Kendra has a Bachelor of Arts degree in English and Writing and a Master of Fine Arts degree in Creative Writing. She earned both of those degrees from Virginia Commonwealth University. Kendra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Kendra, your written articles have appeared in Better Homes and Gardens, The Washington Post, Slate, Taste, Food 52, Wine Enthusiasts, and other publications and websites. And you were a food columnist with the Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper. But before you got into doing freelance writing, while you were at the Virginia Commonwealth University, you were working on your Master of Fine Arts degree and later ended up teaching at Virginia Commonwealth University. Can you tell us a little bit about your time at VCU in that program and, and being a teacher at VCU? Sure. I actually really, really love teaching. Um, my father was a professor, at, now is Professor Emeritus, very much retired, and my mother actually taught there as well, so it was kind of a natural transition to go into academia. Um, and once I did my master's degree, as part of our master's degree program, most of us were doing adjunct teaching, and I decided to go ahead and continue it on And uh, after I had received the degree and go ahead and teach English 101 and English 102, so I had the pleasure of teaching incoming freshmen which is always interesting and fun and challenging but it was really great you know it's i love uh, words i love working in words and i of course love writing myself so it was a natural transition to be teaching as well um, and i did that for about seven eight years until i finally said you know and i think i'm gonna i'm gonna write full-time myself yeah so you really have a strong background in writing with your degrees and your time teaching people how to write and then it seems like a pretty natural transition to become a freelance writer and you know, earning a living as a freelance writer. And as we talked about that a little bit, uh, there's a bit of a challenge and you've got to go out and find the publications and, and work looking for multiple publications so that you can earn a living as a freelance writer writing for a number of publications out there. So tell us a little bit more about that as you were getting uh, into the transition from being a teacher to being a freelance writer. I will say definitely there was some overlap. I was teaching, you know, probably two to three courses per semester, which definitely affords you the opportunity to go ahead and uh, and start submitting some queries. And of course, this was uh, giving giving away how long I've been doing this. This was back in the day when you didn't really do it by email. You did it by snail mail and, and some email. But, you know, the transition to that wasn't really happening where it was exclusively email. There were a lot of publications that, you know, you, they wanted you to mail in a query and you would actually get a little postcard back, you know, saying thanks, but no thanks most of the time, um, <laughs> depending on who you were trying to, um, to query and submit to. But, and I actually kept all of those in a, in a drawer to remind myself, you know. So when I finally got, uh, you know, my, my first few pieces, you know, accepted, then, you know, I was like, all right. I was like, now, now, now I've really done something. And I reminded myself of all that, all the, all the, uh, the ones that didn't get accepted, um, every 
every time I open that drawer. And so it's kind of a humbling experience. It was not a, you know, it was, it was a good thing. Can't do that with email these days. So you could do it when I was working back in the old day. But, but yeah, so I had the tra- uh, transitioned, you know, kind of in, in a slow fashion and eventually phased out the teaching and started writing, um, full time as a, as a freelance, uh, journalist and writer. And as you did that, did you pick food writing, food and beverage writing early on, or did you evolve into that? How did you end up in that area? Yeah. I mean, when I started uh, writing about food, there really weren't a lot of people writing about food. So you had people that were um, writers that were on staff at uh, newspapers. So you had food critics. You had writers on staff at some of the you know larger magazines like Gourmet Magazine and Bon Appetit. And New- and then, of course, the big newspapers, New York Times, uh, and then the regional newspapers as well. Um, and I always thought that was would be such an interesting um, thing to go into because I was, I was always really into food and cooking. I actually wrote my first cookbook long before I was writing about food and I just I just did it for fun. Um, I decided I'm going to write a cookbook and I'm going to put it together on my dot matrix printer <laughs> and I'm going to print it out and I'm going to give it to family for Christmas and that's what I did and that was my and it was on, it was spiral bound, you know. Was, so that was the very first cookbook that I met, did myself at a Kinkos basically. And so I knew that I had this interest in food and I really loved cooking and I loved writing recipes even though I really didn't know what I was doing at the time. And uh, so I said, hey, you know, there's people that do this and maybe I'll try and, and write about food. Um, and back then there wasn't, like I said, very many um, people writing about food. So the landscape was vastly, vastly different than what it is today. It's, uh, you know, frankly, oversaturated in a lot of ways. There's so many people that are freelancing in food and it's a very kind of desirable um, subject that people want to explore and uh, creatively. Oh, and I totally understand that, but it was a lot easier, you know, 15 years ago because uh, there wasn't as much competition when you were submitting um, pitches and queries to different editors. Now, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands that land on their desk. Back then, it was just kind of a handful of us that were really doing this um, on a regular basis. So it was manageable, but it was a lot of fun. I also attended the uh, Greenbrier um, there was a food writers conference at the Greenbrier, and it was the Professional Food Writers Conference is what they called it, the Greenbrier uh, Professional Food Writers Conference, I believe that's what it was called. It was a little bit ago, a little, little while ago. And um, I went to that and basically met with some editors and, and did some networking there. Um, and that was a really great experience. It was lots of seminars. You know, it was a three, four-day conference where we learned everything there was to learn about food writing. And I really didn't know that much about it. I knew a lot about writing, but I didn't know a lot, or I thought I knew a lot about writing at the time. But I didn't know anything about food writing and, and how to reach out and the type of subjects that were covered. So it was a real wonderful overview. Met a lot of great um, fellow writers and editors. And uh, that's kind of where it all started. And then came back to Richmond, armed and going, I'm ready to start writing um, and got my first job as a freelance writer, which was with uh, Style Weekly magazine as a food critic, which was a very new experience for me. So that was my very, very first gig, writing for Style Weekly as a food critic. That's cool. Yeah, I like Style Weekly as a local publication here in Richmond. And being a food critic, it sounds like that was a, a fun experience, getting to taste uh, foods around Richmond and you know probably a few free meals here and there. 
Yeah. Well, actually, no free meals. Um, they had a very uh, strict policy at Style Weekly, and uh, a lot of publications still do today, and I'm, I'm sure Style Weekly still does today, that they actually pay um, or uh, reimburse at the time the writer to go and pay. You know, we paid for the meals. That was very important. Um, and that uh, something I believe that we were going to talk about a little further on down in the podcast here is the the recommendations of the associate uh, the association of food journalism and how that you know will play into things and um, it is uh, a policy with many publications most publications in fact that the writer pay for the meal and oftentimes the publication reimburse them for it so it was in some ways um, a free meal for me, but it was reimbursed by the publication instead of the restaurant. So the writer would not have any influence over the review. Well, that's a good point. Let's talk about that now. The Association of Food Journalists, AFJ. There's some rules and some guidelines and uh, oh, principles of behavior. I don't really know how to describe it. I'll let you talk more about that. They do on their website have a um, a code of ethics is what they call it, and it's uh, a rather lengthy one that I won't go into extreme detail with. But the code of ethics, um, when it comes to food criticism, um, is is pretty straightforward about um, transparency when it comes to receiving uh, comped um, anything really, and it's not just in food writing; it's just in anything. Um, you know, whether you're working in lifestyle or in fashion or travel, um, that. You know, the, these are based on the F, um, what the FTC guide says, um, and uh, that's basically to have you know a full trans, uh, transparency for anything that you are receiving for free, which I will say is oftentimes uh, difficult um, to police, <laughs> and and most people don't really anymore. Um, we are in ever changing times, and it's it's kind of we could go off a cliff and do an entire episode on this if you want to, because it is so. Um, the, the, it's it's such a gray area, especially now with the internet um, and 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 social media in particular, and how you disclose what you're getting um, for free when you are getting some things for free. Like travel writers oftentimes want to write, um, you know, say you, you you are a travel writer and you want to do an article and you've been commissioned by a newspaper or a magazine or whoever a publication to you know do an article on a town in Australia and um, the publication doesn't have the money to comp you know not to comp you to um, to pay for you to go out there and do that type of research and, and do your reporting so uh, a lot of times you have travel writers that will work with um, with uh, PR folks um, and get a lot of that comped so they can actually go do their job and so it's almost a necessary evil in that way that you need you have to have that to some extent because we writers don't get paid enough to <laughs> to pay for a trip to Australia out of our own pocket by any means um, but what the FTC is asking and what the AFJ has as one of their many points in their code of ethics is to um, 
just to have full transparency um, with the article or even with the Instagram post or with the uh, Facebook post or whatever social media post or blog post, you know, when it's when you're working with bloggers, um, just to say, you know, this this meal, w- uh, I'm sorry, this trip was paid for, you know, A, B and C organization um, or convention bureau or in the case of uh, food that, you know, that this would, this was provided by this company or this organization, just to say it, you know, there's really... A, one point there were hashtags that people were using called hashtag spawn sponsored you know this is sponsored post and this kind of stuff um but actually now the ftc has gone further and said you know don't you don't even need to use the hashtag you need to just come out and say it um and you know most do and some don't and it's just kind of a difficult time, a difficult thing that I think a lot of uh, writers and bloggers and influencers are trying to navigate, um, and and PR companies and and the the brands that are um, wanting coverage and and you know wanting to give comps in you know in in trade for coverage or having um, bloggers write sponsored posts and things of that nature. Um, it's it's a an ever changing gray area because it's. Um, as with social media and as with you know the the internet and with journalism and 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 media as a whole that it's just changing so 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 fast that it's almost difficult to keep up with it so these rules are in place and and these are the same rules that the AFJ has had for 15 years except they've added a lot more rules that are relative to social media in particular um, because you know 15 16 years ago it, it, there was no social media so it wasn't an issue and um, but today that is what drives a lot of uh, marketing and uh, and so there's uh, like I said, a, a lot of of gray area when it comes to you know what you can say, um, what you can't say, and and being completely and totally transparent. And I don't have an easy answer for it. <laughs> I will say, for me personally, um, I stick to the uh, the code of ethics that the um, AFJ has as as much as I can. Pretty much always, I personally choose um, not to take um, comps, and that's. Not because I don't appreciate them, it's because it's just easier for me to, I feel, go about the work that I'm doing um, and not have to feel obligated in any way. Um, and as a freelancer, you don't, the publications aren't going to usually pay um, for, you know, any, any trips or food, unless you're working as a food critic, you're a restaurant critic, and that's, and that's different. But um, in, in for regular articles, you know, you might get some gas reimbursed or something, on, you know, from the, the publication that you're working for. Um, but a lot of times you don't, um, you know, unless you're working and writing for the, the bigger publications, like the big names, the real big names that we all dream about writing for. Um, and they have bigger budgets. But in this day and age, we are working, you know, within the constraints of um, publications and media with very, very limited bu- budgets. So uh, writers and content creators and influencers and bloggers and everybody, you know, they have to find other ways to uh, get their stories. And sometimes that does involve um, having things comped. And so, I, you know, the AFJ and the FTC basically just ask, hey, just just be transparent about it. Kendra, that was great. There have been a lot of changes with social media coming into play. There are ethics rules, um, uh, the rules you described about disclosing whether something's sponsored or not. 
it's a, a difficult thing to navigate, and there are a lot of issues out there, and and we need these uh, professional organizations to provide guidance so that we understand what the right way to approach this stuff is. So I encourage our listeners, if you're into journalism, you're into writing, to look up this Association of Food Journalists, the AFJ, uh, look at their website, look at their uh, guidelines for ethics. I think that's a good resource that people ought to pay attention to. I want to go back now for a little bit to your days of being a journalist. You had a byline in these publications, and people started noticing that you were a professional writer with a byline, writing for multiple publications. And PR firms started pitching you to write about their products or services or whatever it was they were pitching. I'd like you to talk about that a little bit and being on the receiving end of pitches from PR firms. And then a little bit of insight to share with the audience on what you should or should not do uh, to successfully pitch to a journalist. There are some examples you've told me about that were some wrong ways to pitch to you uh, that were you know bad mistakes. And then there's a right way to get your attention. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about being on the receiving end of pitches and, and share some advice. Where to start on that one, though? Um, I will say this. Um, probably the biggest thing that maybe many PR folks don't realize when it comes to journalists receiving pitches is the absolute sheer volume that we're getting. Like when I was writing regularly and when I had uh, the column in the newspaper, for example, so I had something coming out every Sunday, I had that byline, um, and I I'm literally a hundred a day, you know, in some cases, sometimes more when you get into editors and writers in the big national magazines, it's, it can be <laughs> literally like a thousand, you know, it's so, so much volume. And, and, you know, years ago, it wasn't quite as much today. Um, I, I think I forgot what I read somewhere. It was talking about the ratio of, uh, people doing PR to journalists is four to one. So you have um, one journalist to four PR people pitching them. So you're getting a tremendous amount of volume in your inbox on a regular basis on top of the other work that you have to do and on top of the stuff that's coming from your editors and you're filtering, filtering through it. So, um, you know, I, I definitely feel for the 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 PR folk that, you know, and, and I've done a little PR myself in the past. So I've been on that side of it. And it, it is and it is really tough because you're competing with so many other pitches that are coming in at, at rapid pace all day long and, and an already very, very busy editor or writer that doesn't have time to read them or deal with them. So it, it comes down to a lot of different things. Um, you know, one for me was always, okay, you know, what, what's the headline of this pitch? You know, um, when I, when I see the email, what, you know, what, what does that, that first line say and and it's it's a make or break whether the email even gets opened um and you know there's a lot of things um that are sometimes done well and a lot of things that are sometimes not done so well um, when it comes to those pitches and um you know for me i kind of had you know the things that i preferred and what what i didn't prefer um i definitely preferred working and developing close relationships with PR people. Uh, and I know you had Elizabeth Edelman on earlier, and she talked about that and just really just having um, really 
long-term you know solid relationships with um her her writers and then going you know going back to them time and time again and saying hey let's work together on this let's work together on that once you've had a, a good relationship established and it takes time to do that um that's that's invaluable i think in the long run um what honestly never worked for me personally ever in 15 years um, was responding to a PR pitch that was a mass blast um, that went out you could you know it was BCC to 2,000 other writers or whatever it was you know 100 writers 200 writers um, I never responded to those personally because one I found more than uh, more often than not they just weren't really relevant um, which uh, to, to what I was writing about and the type of to articles that I wrote. And it, it was almost kind of like, a, and, and I, and I get in, in the defense of people doing PR, I totally get why they do that. You don't have time to like reach out one by one by one. You just got to get it out and go, okay, let's, let's throw it out on the wall and see what sticks. Um, for me, I never responded to those because, um, a lot of times, uh, things can go very wrong with them, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and and I, I, I've, I've joked before, you know, I've had my name messed up in so many different ways um, because, they, you know, I'm being pitched to, you know, write a, about some, uh, I don't know, some canned stew somewhere. And 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 they, the person pitching me, you know, um, calls me Mr. Bailey or... <laughs> <laughs> or dear Bailey, or hi, you know, hi Morris, you know, they don't don't even know what my first name is. You're kind of like, or, or Kendall, or I mean, I can go on and on and on, um, and you're not really getting off to a good start when that happens. So you know, which brings me to the next step. Um, honestly, the absolute uh, most important thing, if I had to impart a, some uh, key information to anyone that's writing press releases to journalists and, and food, I'll say food journalists in particular to you, but all, uh, it, it uh, goes beyond just food journalism is to just to know the editor or writer's beat, know their beat, know what they write about and read some of the articles. And if it's a freelance writer, uh, know who they contribute to on a regular basis. And um, if it's somebody who's on staff, obviously know what their role is on staff, whether they work more in an editorial capacity or if they're a writer, if they assign stories, um, and what, and most importantly, what they write about. Um, probably the biggest offender is irrelevant pitches, and I mean not even close sometimes. <laughs> not even, not even food. Not even remotely connected to food. Uh, I get tech picked, you know technology stuff and cars and you know it's all really interesting but i'm not writing about that so um that's probably the 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 biggest the biggest offender um and and you know make, making those pitches timely and relevant and you know i always responded better when again uh, like i said before when i felt like i was developing a relationship with uh, over time with um a a uh, um somebody pitching me and uh, a lot of times, you know, sometimes that's done even through social media, following each other, um, or it was easier, I think, for um, folks working in PR in, in Richmond to pitch because we're traveling in the same circles. Uh, it's, you know, it's when you're getting a pitch from someone all the way across the United States about a chef um, that's opening a restaurant in L.A. that's completely irrelevant to you that you're not really there's nowhere to really go with that. Or even better, I, I can't can count the thousands of times I got invited to um, media previews in other countries 
<laughs> so I said, I'd, oh, I'd love to go, but, you know, oh, Sweden, you know, sounds great. But, you know, I'm, I'm in Virginia. You might want to learn that one first. But <laughs> um, so that is definitely one big one um, is to know the beat. And I know there's a lot of writers out there probably not in their head going, yes, yes, yes. And a lot and I will say there are a lot of uh, people in PR that really do a great job with that. And, and that's refreshing. Um, and the other is um, we were talking about the box of cheese, <laughs> the infamous box of cheese. Um, yeah, it was some time ago that I was writing for uh, several different publications and doing a lot of recipe development. Uh, and I would get a lot of pitches from uh, PR folks that were um, on behalf of food brands. Uh, and I didn't really write branded content um, at that time. And uh, so, you know, it was, wasn't, I, I understand that. They're like, oh, okay, we, we know you write about you know, do cheese articles when maybe you write about our cheese brand, for example. And uh, so that's fine. I would get a lot of pitches about that. Most of the time, like I said, it wasn't really rele relevant to me. Uh, but one time I just had a, a giant box of cheese arrive, you know, at my front door. <laughs> Literally a huge moving box full of cheese with probably, um, it was a spreadable cheese um, that's fairly well known that I will not mention. Uh, and it was probably 30 different flavors of it. And I opened it up and I said, oh my God, where did this come from? You know, it's a big box of this spreadable cheese. And there was a note It said, thank you so much. And we just want you to um, you know, try all this cheese and incorporate it into your articles. And I was just like, wait, 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 wait. No one ever reached out to me prior, you know, I, I, and I'm all of a sudden I'm stuck with all of this cheese that I don't want, that I can't use, that I'm, you know, as I love cheese, don't get me wrong, but there was no way for me to incorporate it. And I felt like it was a waste um, of a lot of great cheese um, that was going to spoil. And um, I, you know, found the person's contact inf information in the box. And I, and I, I, you know, wrote her back and said, hey, I said, you know, thank you so much. But, you know, I, I can't accept this. And I said, there's nothing I can really, you know, um, do in terms of, of, you know, writing about this cheese. And she's like, well, she was not happy. And I said, you know, uh, in, in the future, if you could just reach out and send me an email and go, hey, we'd like to send you some of this um, cheese. And uh, if you're interested, we'll send it to you instead of just blindly sending a giant box. Of cheese, you know, so she's like, oh, we'll just throw it away. It doesn't matter anyways. And then I was just like, wow, you know, what a what a waste of great cheese. You know, I mean, we, we ate some of it because I, <laughs> I was like, I'm not just going to like, you know. I was like, oh, can I donate this to a food bank or something? You know, it's just kind of, but like uh, on the part of the brand, I felt like, you know, in that case, that was um, a mistake that the PR firm did on behalf of the brand that was donating product and um, not really uh, vetting the journalists properly before sending them a ton of product. And so that was the infamous cheese story. Kendra, thank you. Those are very good points, particularly knowing the journalist beat and reaching out before you're going to send any samples. So if you're going to send samples to somebody, at least reach out to them in advance. Let them know that that's what you'd like them to do, and even better, get their buy-in before you do it. So great tips, great insight there on how to work successfully with a journalist. 
So, Kendra, you spend more time now as a content writer, and that's been a, a change over time. While you were a journalist, you were doing some content writing for companies and brands, but over time, you've done less journalism and more content writing. So, I'd like you to talk about that transition. Sure. Probably the best way to sum it up is um, the the change in what's happening with publications and so many of them well, and when I say publications I mean as far as journalism goes um, it's kind of unfortunately the land of layoffs and instability um, when it comes to uh, working in newspapers and magazines and at one you know and I kind of came out of a print background um, that back in the day you could get a um, dollar to two dollars a word um, which was incredible so you would get an assignment and you know that was lengthy and and make some good money and you would do several of those or many of those a year and uh, um, you know make yourself a decent living uh, but now as uh, so many so much of the landscape has changed one uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier an oversaturation of food writers out there um, with many of them uh, not many but I will say quite a few of them are just excited to get started and now the publications will come to you and say hey you know we want you to write you know this story or that story but we don't really have a budget yet will you write it for free and they say yes um, and uh, that's certainly their prerogative and the publications are doing what a publication would do which is um, you know uh, Get 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 what they can for free when you can, uh, because they're 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 struggling as well. Um, and so you know you don't really have the days where you're getting a dollar to two dollars a word. Um, you don't. It's very very difficult to make a living on journalism alone, um, unless you're you know a staff writer um, somewhere on salary, and even that is tenuous uh, with the amount of layoffs that are happening now. Um, and uh, you're kind of, you know, looking over your shoulder going, God, I hope it's not me this time, you know. And uh, so, you know, that was a big determining factor. So when I first started, I was doing, uh, you know, I would say probably 90% journalism and like 10% um, doing some writing for brands. And the, the type of writing that I did for brands back in the day was less writing and more recipe development. Um, so I did recipe development for um, um Publix. I, I did some content writing um, for Publix for uh, Procter and Gamble. I did some work with Sir Latob, um, and that had its kind of own demand. Um, but now, with the landscape being the way that it is in journalism, unfortunately, you know, I, I love, I, I enjoy writing for brands, but I love journalism. You know, there's no two ways about it. Um, it was, you know, why I wanted to get into this many, many years ago. Um, I would love to be doing more journalism um, in that way, but it's just not really um, sustainable financially. And um, it's, like I said, it's, it's very tough. It's very competitive. And I will approach um, the same editors that I've worked with before. Um, and, and I'm talking at big national magazines and, you know, that would pay a dollar word and they go, hey, you know, we just don't have, you know, they're apologetics, not their fault. They're like, we just don't have it. Um, but, you know, we can give you 10 cents a word. So it's, it's not, it's not like it's a dollar a word to 75 cents a word. It's like a dollar a word to like five and 10 cents a word. And so it's a, a pretty big pay cut that everyone's having to kind of, um, to deal with. So, uh, we find other ways to hustle. Um, so, uh, I do um, more content writing now, um, digital um, 
you know, branded content, web content, blogging. You know, um, I, I work exclusively within food and drink because I want to keep that my niche. Um, I really don't deviate off of that in any way. Uh, I could, but uh, just for now, I'd like to. I think there's a, enough out there. Um, working with various types of brands, depending on what you know what they are. I did some work for Crockpot brand and uh, their web, and um, that was actually a, a lot of fun to write product descriptions on the on on some recipe. Uh, it was a recipe kit that they were doing, and I write that write the. Um, descriptions of the food and um, it was a little bit of copywriting and it was a little bit of food writing and uh, so it, it was a lot of marketing um, so it that's been a bit of a, a switch in mindset for me as a writer but um, I'm I've been embracing it because I find it really exciting I think that so many more people are um, and when it comes to food writing um, and I, I know including well-known journalists that I've respected over the years are making more of that switch as well out of necessity and many are switching to PR um, because again, that's it's a, a very strong creative field. Um, and, and working in food PR, they already have connections with other writers and at magazines, um, and they're also uh, darn good at writing press releases. And they know um, what they should say because they've been on that receiving end as a journalist. Um, so there's a there's a lot, there's a tremendous number actually of um, a surprising number, shall I say, of food writers out there that are making more of a transition to content writing and like a, and marketing. Um, and content marketing, digital, the digital strategy, all different kinds of things like that, um, and uh, and then some even straight up going and working for agencies and doing PR. Kendra, as my listeners know, I have a background in marketing and content marketing and writing content for websites or email or whatever uses uh, are out there, and there are plenty of uses for content. Uh, it's a theme that is a big theme in marketing, getting the story told, get the content out there. So that looks like a natural transition to make. That If you're a writer, you've been a journalist, you know how to write, you know how to tell a story, going over from being a journalist to being a content writer, uh, that is a path that seems like a good path these days for people who are good at writing. There's demand for people to do that. And for me, uh, I read a lot of things, and sadly, I find a lot of content is poorly written. Um, a little disappointed in that. So I appreciate people who have the kind of writing background that you have, the education that you have, the experience you have teaching at VCU, teaching writing, being a journalist, having somebody who has those skills well-developed, going over to content writing, writing the messages well, developing the story well, writing something that's interesting to read, that's educational, and so on. I really appreciate people like you coming from that background, going into that work, and making that uh, good content. Because it does kind of annoy me when I see something as content that's just so poorly written that I just, it really turns me off to see things poorly written. A little bit of a snob about that, I guess. But anyway, um, I like that you've gone down this path and you're in that field of content writing. I appreciate that that's what you're doing now. Kendra, one of the reasons I was excited about having you come in here today is I'm a big fan of the Food Network. People who know me know that I'm a big fan of the Food Network. I love Chopped and the next Food Network star and Beat Bobby Flay and all these things. And I like the foodie atmosphere of Richmond. And so having you in here as a person who appreciates that same theme uh, makes me happy to have you in here and talk about 
that kind of content. So I want to go into having you explain how do you write a good article that describes food and beverages? Because you're writing about something that people ultimately taste, and they can't taste it, and so you've got to explain it in your article. So give us some insights on how to write a good article about food and beverages. Well, first off, I love the Food Network, too. So <laughs> that was uh, a, a huge influence on me when I was writing about food. I was slightly obsessed about it. And, and even I'll go back a little bit further and, and go back to PBS days. You know, when you get back to the Julia Child and I'll just still watch it all the time. I love the Create channel, but I digress. Um, yeah, when it comes to, you know, writing about food, obviously there's lots of different kind of sub genres of uh, that you approach a little bit differently. Like, for example, when I would write recipe articles, um, obviously the article was driven by the recipe itself um, and the, the cooking tips uh, that went along with it. Same with my cookbooks. Um, it's real heavily driven in, in that direction. So, you you know, that's kind of more almost like, an, especially the recipe end of it, more technical writing type stuff. So you're, you're going into the kitchen and um, you're testing a recipe and you're testing it again. And, and then you're writing it out and you have to know how to write recipes. And and you mentioned earlier, you were talking about how there's sometimes you see bad writing and it drives you crazy. I, I go I go crazy and I see poorly written recipes. It makes me nuts because um, uh, a, a lot just, there's a lot of it out there. Um, and I actually made a, a part of my niche is doing corporate recipe development for brands as well, um, because I'm I'm a believer as somebody who opens and is obsessed with cookbooks. Um, when you open up a cookbook and you want to make a recipe and you're like super excited about making that recipe and you go out and you spend all this money and you buy all the ingredients and you bring it home and you make it and it fails and it fails because the recipe was written poorly and the reader didn't understand it or the cook didn't understand it or there were mistakes in it or, or the worst, it was never really tested properly or not tested at all in some cases, uh, you're really doing a disservice, you know, to your to your home cooks um, when they go to that through all that trouble only to have something fail. So um, definitely the technicality behind recipe writing is its own Thing. And there are a lot of food writers out there that almost do that exclusively and are really, really good at it. Um, many of them are cookbook authors multiple times over. Um, but then you can get into different types of, of food writing, obviously, everything from uh, first-person essays, memoirs. Um, you can get into the straight-up journalism, reportive journalism uh, type stuff that you would write for, like uh, that is heavily researched. It's going to involve a lot of interviews. Um, I've done all of these in one way <laughs> or another over the years, um, and they're all very different. But I will say the bottom line is uh, you have readers out there that um, want to get something, um, you know, little nuggets um, to to that make them want to come back and read you again, that um, in this day and age, day and age gives your um, article traffic because um, that's very important. Um, the the publications want clicks, and so you have to find a way to make that happen. Um, so the story, you know, it has to tell a story. Uh, what you're you're a storyteller, you know. That's the bottom line. As a writer, uh, as a food, you know, as any type of a writer, for the most part. But as a food writer, I see it as we're, we're storytellers. We're, we're we're telling the story about a food, a restaurant, a chef, a place, a way to cook, um, uh, how to make a recipe, um, and you're you're 
you're sharing that information um, uh, and you're make you're making it exciting for the reader in a way that um, keeps them reading through to the end ideally <laughs> and 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 again makes them want to read more of your work and then makes the publications obviously uh, want to publish your work more um, but y- you know it's it you're also educating a lot of times um, and, and when I will say less about writing about food in the sense of memoir or um, in, in that way, uh, I would say when you're, when I'm writing about cooking um, and I think about cooking te- tips, you know, uh, recipes, uh, trends, things of that nature, you're, you're educating um, and you're sharing uh, useful information for the reader. Uh, that's cookbooks in a nutshell, I, I would argue um, that you're really, you know, sharing um not just the recipes, but the the stories behind the recipes, the um, the the tips and tricks that go along with it. In some cases, m- many many cookbooks nowadays walk the line between uh, just straight up recipes and 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 memoir. You know, so you have a lot of that. My first cookbook was like that that I wrote for Random House was um, very heavy on the memoir end of it, um, which was a lot a, a lot of fun to do, um, but unusual. It wasn't something that you saw very often. Um, but you know, there's a lot of things as writers that you you have to be aware of, and when it comes into to you know describing the food, um, the most you, you had brought that up a couple times. I'd say that probably the most important aspect of it is if you want to write about food and you want to write about food well, no matter what aspect of that you're going to be doing, you know, whether it's food criticism or recipes or or um, you know just articles or research articles, whatever, that you you really you need to know the food. You got to eat. You got to eat a lot. You got to cook a lot. Uh, you have to um, dine out a lot. And I think the um, the thing that a lot of food writers miss is the cooking aspect of it. Um, and they go, oh, I, and I, you know, I, I just write about food. I don't cook it. And it's like, they, you know, you got to get in there and get your hands dirty, even if you stink at it. <laughs> and you know, some some not everyone has the cooking gene, so to speak, you know, or the or the love of it. They just don't want to do it. Um, but I've always felt that that is something that you kind of need to do, even if you force yourself just to do one or two dishes, just to get in there on a regular basis. I mean, it's easy um, to be the person that just goes out and eats in restaurants all the time and never cooks at home. But then maybe. Um, writes about restaurants or um, as a food critic, more importantly. Um, and I've always kind of felt like if you're going to to be a food critic and, and you know, analyze how a chef is making um, her food or his food, then you should know how the food is made. You don't have to be an expert in it, but have some comprehension of it. Um, and I think that also translates into really great food writing when you when you understand the food and you know the food and say you're writing about a dish, you understand the components of the dish. Um, you know what you're looking at, you know what you're tasting, um, and you can write about it confidently and you know what each of those ingredients are. And, and now you're talking about Richmond's great food scene. I mean, Richmond has an absolutely fantastic food scene. It's mind-blowingly good um, and better than it's ever been. And um, there are a lot of chefs out there doing some really experimental things. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll walk into a restaurant, and I'm like, I don't know what that is like some sort of weird leaf. I'm like, I don't even know what this is, you know. And, you know, I'm like, I'll look it up, you know, I'll find a way to educate myself on what that is. Um, you know, of course, I will, I will probably eat it without thinking, because I do that as well. But I definitely 
want to know want to know what it is um and we're at a different level now in richmond than we were 15 you know 20 years ago when it comes to food i mean in my opinion we're on the level of of the the great cities in the country and i will i will continue to say that um loud and proud rva um that they're just doing incredible stuff and so you know the when i worked my first you know, food writing job as a food critic for Style Weekly. That was back in 2003. We didn't have the kind of, you know, we had great restaurants, but we didn't have the same scene. You know, I, I would go and, and talk about a, a pizza place, you know, <laughs> but then I would also talk about a, a nicer place as well. Um, but the trends were totally different. Um, there wasn't the cocktail culture that exists today, which is its own thing. There wasn't the beer culture. And there definitely weren't chefs that were just plating, like, um, just absolutely outstanding, amazing artwork, you know, on, um, that, like I said, is, is, I mean, that's why we have several chefs, um, and, uh, that have been nominated for James Beard awards multiple times, um, and in the past few years and, well-deserved, you know, because we're on that level. Um, but you have to have, if you're going to write about food and if you're going to write about it, especially regionally here in Richmond, we'll say it's, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's important to know it. You, it's important to know the food before you can write about the food <laughs> in all sense. And that's, that's eating it, that's cooking it. Um, and I will add this, you got to read the great food writers. People don't do that as much, um, anymore. You, there are, you, you gotta, you, you gotta read, you know, and I've always said that about writing in general. If you want to be a great writer, you do two things. You write all the time and you read all the time. And if you want to be a great food writer, you write all the time, you read all the time and you eat and you cook <laughs> and, and, and you immerse yourself as much as possible and you just become a sponge and soak it all in. Kendra, I love that. That is so insightful. It's, it's somewhat obvious, too, that if you want to be a good food writer, you've got to read good food writers' work. You've got to write a lot and practice your craft. And you've got to eat and you've got to cook. That's great. I love that. I love that. That's great advice and insight on how to be a good food writer. Well, Kendra, we've reached our time limit today. This has been very interesting to hear you talk about your background in journalism. But I have to wrap this up now. To our audience, you have been listening to the Agency Work Podcast. My guest today has been Kendra Bailey Morris. We have been talking about her background as a freelance writer, the ethics of journalism, transitioning from journalism to content writing, and the craft of food writing. To learn more about Kendra, go online to KendraBaileyMorris.com, all one word, and it's long, so bear with me, K-E-N-D-R-A-B-A-I-L-E-Y-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. And yes, Kendra, it was neat that that was available. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kendra. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Sure. This has been fun. And to our audience, thank you for listening. I will be back next week with a new guest, and I hope you will tune into that episode. This podcast was recorded at Red Amp Audio in Richmond, Virginia. This is Agency Work, signing off.